preaching of God's Word then is in Psalm 61, verses 1 through 4. Psalm 61, 1 through 4. We've seen the whole of this psalm. Here again, uh, these four verses. The Psalm of David. Hear my cry, O God. Attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto Thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For Thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in Thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of Thy wings. Selah. David, who has authored this pen, was no stranger to trial, sorrow, and affliction. We see that early on as we are introduced to him, and we see it in various degrees throughout his life. And likewise, in various ways, neither are we strangers to various degrees of trial. We know what it is to uh, suffer loss of things. We know what it is to have our plans turned upside down. We know what it is for our good intentions and uh, prayerful pursuits to come to a close. We know what it is for men, women, even children to betray not only us, but the cause of Christ. We know what it is to be mocked and ridiculed and wrongly represented. And we know what it is to suffer. We may not know the full extent of that suffering as some of our brethren do, but every Christian knows something of suffering for Christ. David knew that as well. And though we know it, to whatever degree we have experienced it and will experience it, it is amazing how in our own experience it often catches us in a state of confusion. What is this that we're suffering? Why is this? That we're suffering. What am I supposed to do now that I'm suffering? We can see in the psalm that David acknowledges his previous trials. And so he testifies, verse 3, Thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. David has walked these paths before. Indeed, he walks them now and he would walk them doubtlessly Again, just as Christians in our day, as you have in various ways so suffered before, you'll notice that David seems in particular to be in a state of exile. He mentions in verse 1, the end of the earth. That may not strike us as all that particular, but for David, this is to be cast out of the promised land. There were several occasions when he was so chased away Of course, he experienced that when once anointed and chased by Saul, but he also experienced on other occasions, most notably by his own son Absalom. It seems to be of the latter time because he mentions in verse 6 that God will prolong the king's life. He speaks not merely as the anointed one, but as the king, that he's arrived and entered upon his kingship and yet is now cast out. So most likely, it's those most difficult circumstances of Absalom's rebellion, though whatever the circumstances, David is chased away. In the psalm, you'll notice that he appeals to God for merciful care. That's the passage before us, 1 through 4. In verses 6 and 7, David draws comfort 
as it is from God's mercy. Thou wilt prolong the king's life, his years to many generations. Notice, he shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. And this leads him to resolve to praise and obey God. This is a comprehensive lesson for us throughout the whole psalm. It shows us the sincerity of pain. Pain is real for the Christian. It's not a an illusion or an imagination. It's not something that proves some immaturity. It is a reality that Christians face pain. And yet, through the petitions, through the comfort that is uh, known by faith, he also ends in a place of resolving to praise and obey God. So will I sing praise unto thy name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. Now we look particularly at verses 1 through 4, wherein David is appealing for the Lord's ear. Lord, hear me. Notice, hear my cry. O God, attend unto my prayer. Cry and prayer are being used as synonyms. His crying out is his lifting up of his desires to the Lord. And we don't cry for nothing. We cry when in anguish, when in deep distresses. And David expresses that in verse 2 as he resolves further to pray, and he notes particularly that he will cry unto God when my heart is overwhelmed. This is something that seems to be instinctive, but it's amazing how frequently when our hearts are overwhelmed, we almost do anything but pray. We can turn the story over in our minds countless times. We can talk to others. We can shut down. We can enter upon some form of paralysis. But it is rather interesting how we have to be led to cry out to God. And David had learned that lesson and is resolving to do that as well. In verse 3, he notes the ground of encouragement. Notice that God has been a shelter, so there is past experience of the Lord's faithfulness. And likewise does he express his confidence in the Lord's mercy there in verse 4. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust, or as the margin notes, make my refuge in the covert of thy wings, Selah. There's something there in that imagery of the, the wings And perhaps, as it is with reference to the tabernacle, there's an image being uh, made of those angels that covered the mercy seat. And what a beautiful image that David would find this protection there where God exercises mercy. Well, this is not merely for David. It's not a mere private exercise or devotional work. This is the Lord's wise provision to all of his church, that in all times they should have this psalm, that you and I should have this psalm to help us when it is that we are overwhelmed, when it is that we are distressed. And so as we consider this, uh, consider then how it is that grace acts in the midst of trials, because in David we see a beautiful picture of the same, and even beyond that, As God has given us this psalm for his worship, we see how God is cultivating in us the approach to our own trials. How is it? What is it that we're supposed to do in the midst of our trials? So consider then, firstly, 
the trials of believers. Secondly, the hope of believers. And thirdly, the desire of believers. The trials, the hope, and the desire. Firstly then, the trials of believers. We can note a couple of things just from this passage, though many others will come to our mind, doubtlessly. You can note, firstly, the circumstances of trials that capture believers. David is referencing something particular in his own life as he mentions that he is at the end of the earth. He's cast out of the promised land. He is beyond, as it were, the city of Zion. He is uh, removed, as it were, from all earthly comforts. Think of that just in the practical uh, manner. He's away from his home. He's away from his family, from his routines, from his uh, pleasures. And it's amazing how it is that trials are often focused upon the removal of those many things. Those things that make life a bit more comfortable. We find even in sickness, things happen where we don't have comfort anymore. In relational distresses, the comfort that was there in a relationship is removed. In earthly trials, losing finances, losing a house, losing a relationship, losing these things, they bring circumstances that pinch us and poke us and hurt us. And we don't know precisely what Paul experienced. Many surmise that it was his uh, sight that was being lost. But it's interesting, he uses the words that it was a thorn in his side. You got that picture of a thorn going in and the pain that takes place. A thorn doesn't have to be big. It can be. There are some species of thorns that are rather large. But it's amazing how even a small thorn, when once it enters your body, wherever it enters your body, it's almost as if all of your attention, everything about your life now focuses exclusively on that part. Though 99% of your body is untouched by the thorn, that little point, that little prick, is the thing now that gathers all of our attention because it's introduced pain. It's introduced heartache, difficulty, sorrow. And this is what trials do. They come and they poke, they pinch, they prick us. And they make us to feel the pain of a world wherein there is misery. But it's not merely the removal of David's earthly comforts that are in his mind. It seems far more than that, that he senses the removal of what we may call the spiritual comforts of the church. This is wrapped up in the fact that he is from the end of the earth. He's removed. And whereas in our own world today, which is so caught up in this individualistic approach to Christianity, it says, what's the big deal? Who cares about the church? Not only in David's day, but in all days of the church, the ordinances are to be prioritized above all else. It is so because it is by the ordinances that God most fully makes known Himself. 
You take away the Word of God, the reading of God's Word, the preaching of God's Word, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. You take away the singing of psalms and the corporate gathering of God's people, the giving and receiving of the benediction. All of these things removed doesn't necessarily remove God's grace, but what it does do is it removes the avenues, the means by which He ministers the abundant blessings to our souls. This is why in Psalm 121, we are said to be glad, or Psalm 122, I was glad when to the house of God go up, they said to me. I rejoice to be gathered with God's people and to worship the Lord because it's there where God declares unto us, not just in our memory, not just in our conscientious regard, but in the declaration of His Word, in the administration of His sacraments. It's there that He declares unto us with divine authority the blessings which belong to us. He comforts us. It's a great problem in our age when the gospel ministry is not rightly esteemed. It has nothing to do with the man himself. It is rather to do with the ordinance of the gospel ministry that God has particularly appointed that a man be set forth to declare and apply the Word of God in the authority of Christ's name, so that when that is done, the hearer, the worshiper of God, may receive it as the Word of God itself. These privileges are, however, taken from David. Some of us have known those seasons where we're set aside, not voluntarily at all, but providentially, and we can't make it to church. We can't worship with God's people. And whereas there's a majority of people who are beginning to think, what's the big deal? I'll just turn on the computer, I'll load up the sermon, and I'll have it all the same. That's not public worship. It's not attending public worship. There may be benefits that come by meditating upon the Word that's there, but it's not the same as being gathered with God's people as He's ordained, in which assembly God dwells. And when it is we get a sense of that, then it is our souls begin to long for it. And when it's taken from us, the deepest longings of our souls are kept from us in that we do not have the same degree of intimacy that the Lord provides by the means of grace. And David, of course, under the Old Covenant, would have had the same as at the tabernacle, were the daily offerings at the tabernacle, were the, priests, were the priests ministering at the tabernacle, were all of these things taking place, the signs of God's presence, the pronouncements of God's blessings, the means of grace most clearly articulating the way of peace by the blood of the substitute. And David has those all removed from him. So he loses in this affliction the comforts of home, the comforts of family, the comforts of familiarity, and likewise does he remove, uh, have removed from him the additional comforts of these means of grace. And then you'll notice as well, not only is this the case that there are things removed from him, but he has something added to him. And it's there at verse 3 when he mentions the enemy. There has been an enemy and there 
is an enemy. We again don't know if this is particularly when Absalom had uh, taken over the kingdom. It could have been another occasion. But whenever it was that David stood in exile, it was because an enemy chased him out. And Christians today know something of enemies. They come, they oppose the cause of God in Christ Jesus. They despise those who stand for truth. They misrepresent, they accuse, they do all of these things. And so God's people suffer. Brethren, we ought to remember this. None experienced it so as Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus experienced this far more than David did. He experienced it far more than you and I do. And we can even see little points to the Lord Jesus Christ in this psalm. And yet, though Christ experienced it in the highest degree, and David in a high degree, and Paul in a high degree, we experience the same. And what's the effect of these circumstances and trials that come in a variety of ways to us? David notes it quite simply as one of anguish. My heart is overwhelmed. He's come to a point where he can't contain it. It's outside of his ability. There's certain things we think sufficient to handle uh, ourselves. We think that, well, I can handle this. I'll just think about that, work it together. But then a trial comes and it's out our control. There's no arguing with it. There's no putting on the face of thinking we can. And if we do, everyone else in our lives know it's all a fake facade. We can fool ourselves for a season with utter uh, stupidity, but no one else is fooled. They see the, uh, uh, the concern on our faces. They feel the coldness of greetings or not. They sense all of these trials that grip us. And it takes time, many times, for us to realize, here's the truth, I'm overwhelmed. I can't contain this. I can't control it. And David experienced that. Here's something to note. It's not a sign of immaturity to acknowledge that we're overwhelmed by trials. It's not a sign that we are some uh, uh, immature, newly uh, entered disciple of Christ David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man who feared the Lord. David was a man who was used of the Lord. And yet he acknowledged that there would be times when his heart would be overwhelmed. There is some false piety that sneaks into our minds at times. From where it comes, we don't know, but it sneaks into our minds to put on this notion that I'm okay. Now, it's not that we go and we uh, rend our heart to everyone in public, but we don't deny the fact that we are overwhelmed. David puts it down on record for all the church to note. There are seasons of anguish by such trials. But notice the other effect is closely linked. The anguish leads to prayer. This is the difference. The world says, well, we ought to be transparent. 
we ought to be vulnerable, we ought to show everyone our hearts, and we ought to do all of this and that. It's interesting, nowhere in this psalm, we're not saying it's illegitimate, but nowhere in this psalm is David saying, I'm gushing over everyone else, telling them how distressed I am, distraught I am, here's all of my miseries, here's all of my pain, let me update my status so everyone can see just how sad I am and how horrible my life is, and here's the report that I got, and here's the enemies that I'm facing. None of that's in David's life. But what he does acknowledge is that the anguish leads him to vent his sorrows, his difficulties, to the Lord. Hear my cry, O God. In our age, if the world were to write this psalm, it would be something like, Hear my cry, everyone else. I want everyone to know my sorrows. I want everyone to know my pain, my anguish, my difficulties, my heart being overwhelmed. And I want all of them to rally around me. Again, Christians have the need to bear one another's burden and thus to share those burdens that stand in need. But the fundamental orientation of the Christian is to take the concern to God. Hear my cry O God, regardless of those things, it is quite certain that David is here praying from the end of the earth. Now think of that. We talked about some of the circumstances, the difficulties. Though he's removed from the public ordinances, he's not removed from God. Though he is cast out and away from these things, he's not ultimately cast off By God. John the Apostle, of course, had a similar experience when, for the testimony of the Word of God, he was exiled. And though he was without the public ordinances, yet he was not without God's grace and was found in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and Christ did indeed draw near to him. So the trials of believers. Secondly, notice then the hope of the believer believers. It's a fitting transition to note that the effect elicits prayer from the believer in his trial. But what is it that is the hope, the confidence of the believer in trials? A couple of things to note that it's not. It's not, well, everything is going to work out. It's true, the believer has the additional promise in Romans 8 that God works all things together for the good of those that love Him who are the called according to His purpose. But the fundamental hope of the believer is not that somehow everything is going to make sense and work out. And it's certainly not that somehow everything in this life is going to make sense and work out. You think of what history tells us of the Apostle Peter's death. And you think of, in Scripture as it's recorded, of Stephen's stoning You think of Hebrews 11, and though there were those who overcame and physically survived, the end of that chapter records some who suffered unto death. And you have such records of those who were sawn in two. They were sawn asunder. They were stoned. They were ridiculed, mocked. They were made uh, those who were fleeing for their lives. And if you look at that as the message often comes to us, and you were to put this question to those who so suffered and say, hey, does it feel like everything's working out for you right now in this life? I know they're about to cut you in two. 
Aren't you glad that this is working out for you right now in this life? The martyrs had nothing in this world working out for them as the false message of a false gospel often articulates. But they had, what is amazing, a hope which exceeded all other hopes. It's the hope that's recorded in Hebrews 11. It's the hope of those who were spared and given mercy. It's the hope of those who weren't spared and brought to death that they might partake of a better resurrection. It's the hope of all ages of Christians. What is it? Well, it's simple in verse 1. It's God. God is their hope. Hear my cry, O God. The world knows how to take that name in vain. It doesn't know the first lesson of taking it in faith. David is by no means taking it in vain. He's crying out to the God of heaven and earth. And he's saying, hear my prayer, my cry, O God. It reminds us of what's recorded in Psalm 121 with such encouragement when we're told, notice in verse 2 and in verse 5, my help cometh from the Lord. Well, tell me about your Lord, Jehovah. I'll tell you, it's Jehovah which made heaven and earth. Verse 5, The Lord, Jehovah, is thy keeper. He's your guard. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. And so on. The God in whom we hope is the God of heaven and earth who has entered into covenant with us by grace. There's no greater hope than that. There's no greater cause of confidence than that. I look to God. Instantly, the true believer sees through all of the false comforts of this system of various saints and co-redeemers and various systems that somehow get us to a greater favorable standing with God. David didn't need any of that. No believer needs any of that. Moreover, none of that's promised to the believer. None of that's provided to the believer. But consider for a moment, even if those things were offered, what are saints compared to God? What is the Virgin Mary compared to the Maker of heaven and earth? What is Paul and Peter What are the saints throughout history compared to the one who saved them and who saves us? The hope of the believer rests squarely upon God Himself. And you'll notice with that, the hope has experience. Because notice as well, the hope stands in God's faithfulness. Verse 3, Thou hast been a shelter for me. Is there any believer here who can't point back in their own lives and say, God has been faithful to me? Every believer is able to look back and say, God spared me here. 
God provided me there. When I had no other avenue of known help, all of a sudden God helped me in this way. God was merciful. God's forgiven my sins. God hasn't forsaken me. In other seasons when I faced trial, yet though it was difficult and painful and arduous, yet I knew the fellowship of God. David has the same. Thou hast been a shelter for me. Some things regarding the revelation of God at times get represented as if they're merely theoretical, merely cerebral, merely intellectual. I'll give you an example. Some people think the immutability, God's unchangeableness, is one of those doctrines that, well, you know, that's for the more mature Christian, that's for the theologian, and so on. What help is that for the common Christian? Well, it's tremendously helpful. Because that God doesn't change tells us that what He has been is what He is and always will be. And so the believer is able to reason, even in his very limited way, if God has been faithful in the past, God doesn't change. He'll be faithful today. He'll be faithful next year. And then we can often start borrowing trouble from tomorrow, even though Christ specifically tells us, sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. And our minds start winding up all sorts of anxiety from the future. And we start thinking of what could be and what might be and what pain might come and trials could come. And oh, all the signs are pointing that they're going to come. All of those can be answered with this simple question. Has God been faithful in the past? And if the answer is yes, then whatever's coming tonight, tomorrow, next week, next year, next decade, next generation is going to be met with God's faithfulness then. And David knows that. Thou hast been a shelter for me. Notice that's the argument for why it is David will from the end of the earth cry unto God still. Because you've been faithful to help me, I'm going to cry out now. God's faithfulness stands as the hope of the believer. Brethren, it may be that we become blinded at times and in our own limited perspective, we don't see how clearly faithful God has been to us individually But then what a privilege that God's given us His written record of covenant faithfulness in all generations. His faithfulness to Abraham. His faithfulness to Moses, to the Israelites, to the twelve tribes, to the nation of Israel, to David himself, to Elijah. And on and on we could uh, go through all the instances. You have to make a comprehensive study of the whole of Scripture to see that God is faithful in all of these circumstances. And what God is to His people, He is to His people today. God is faithful still. And so, the believer's hope today is not some general thought that things are just going to work out, but rather, God, who is the Maker of heaven and earth, is faithful to His people. He's promised to me to be my God. He's promised to me never to leave me, nor to forsake me. He's promised to be with me at all times. And thus, I have the confidence He will be with me even in this trial. 
Isn't it the thing that Satan loves to challenge and ridicule? If God were for you, if God were with you, would any of this be going on? And oh, how quick we are to bend the ear to Satan and turn our ear from God and start entertaining the false and the wicked thought that God would not be faithful when in His Word He has promised that very thing to us. It doesn't mean we just sort of turn off our affections and say God's going to be faithful, flippantly carry on. David's in anguish. He's overwhelmed. And yet, he's venting his soul unto God, confident that the Lord would be faithful still. Well, notice thirdly, then, the desire of the believer. What is it that David wants And what is it then that the Lord would cultivate in us to want in our trials? Well, it's clear David desires deliverance by God. Verse 2 uses this language, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. We have a picture given to us that we're here in the troubles of the lowland and we need to get up to the stronghold of the high place. But notice that David says, lead me. He needs God to lead him. He needs God's divine and merciful help provided to David. David wants, and the believer wants, to be led of God to a place of refuge. It's something for us to remember. It's not just that we want deliverance. Because if we just start and stop there, then we're still left with the temptation to think, I'm going to figure this out. We desire God to intervene and deliver us. We want Him to take care of us. And we have great reason confidently to expect this. We've already seen this with reference to the hope of the believer. But think of a psalm of David that is precious to all Christians. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And what does the shepherd do? He guides us, sometimes through the valley of the shadow of death, other times into green pastures. But the comfort that is afforded to the Christian is that the Lord Jehovah is guiding us. And that's what David wants in the midst of the trial. Lord, whatever else does happen or doesn't happen, what my desire is is that you would lead me, that I wouldn't step off the trail, that I wouldn't shirk the cross appointed to me, that I wouldn't cease following Christ, but Lord, I pray, lead me, but lead me to the rock that is higher than I. The place of safety, the high ground. But notice, with this divine deliverance, David wants and desires, and thus we are to desire, gracious fellowship with God. It's caught up in that very expression, the rock that is higher than I. Who among us cannot instantly think of the rock of salvation and so on? But there's in the text something, as noted earlier, that's more direct. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. It's an interesting statement because David isn't in the tabernacle. He's actually away from the tabernacle. But he's mentioning something here. When I don't have the sign, it's not that I'm without the thing signified. 
when I don't have the tabernacle, that doesn't mean I don't have access to God. When I don't have the sacrifice before me, it doesn't mean I don't have the blood shed for me. The Christian knows this in our day. When we don't have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, it's not as if the promises of forgiveness, the promises of fellowship aren't ours. What's the benefit of the sacrament? Not that it adds something additional to us, but rather that it gives additional and clearer testimony of what is ours in Christ. Sometimes the Lord takes the sign away that our faith in a stronger exercise may lay hold of what God has promised. And this is what David's desiring. I desire not the sign, but I desire what is signified by the sign. I want to dwell with you. This is what God promised His people and promises us still today. That He will dwell in our midst. And so it is for us. Notice, in the covert of thy wings. could simply be a poetic expression, as it were, God covering us as a hen covers her chicks, as elsewhere is stated. But the close proximity of this, with the reference to the tabernacle, does cause us to infer a reference to the mercy seat, where it is we find refuge. There the throne of God, which is upon the Ark of the Covenant, is called a mercy or propitious seat. And the angels which were there signified did cover it. And they're testifying, this is where I will meet with you. Think of that. Of all the ways that God signifies different things under the Old Covenant, He says this, the mercy seat, the place of propitiation is where I, holy God, will meet with you. And this is David's desire. Whatever else I don't have, however long I'm abandoned from my rightful throne, however long I'm exiled from my house, my home, and the outward ordinances, O God, my desire is to abide with You and to find refuge at the place of mercy. Believer, this is still the great desire of all saints in trial. Many times you can hear people thinking through, what am I supposed to do in trial? How am I going to get this circumstance to change and everything else? Not realizing it may be that the circumstance never changes. It may be the circumstance only worsens. It may be that there are waves still to come that are far superior in height, strength, and anguish than the present waves which threaten to overwhelm you now. But even if that's the case, what David is seeking is sufficient to every wave of trial that will come. Because God is saying, I'm with you. I'm at peace with you. Though the world is against you, David perhaps, though your very son is against you, though your kingdom's turned against you, though you don't see the outward signs that minister encouragement, yet I have promised and I am with you, even as the Word testifies. And the believer saying, that's what I want. Put it the other way. 
Isn't it shameful when we are content with the earthly comforts the Lord provides us and we have no strong desire for the Lord? Spiritually speaking, which is a better position? Is it better to have the earthly comforts and immature and weak exercise of grace or to have the comforts removed from us and have the strong exercise of grace that we may better know the Lord. Now, of course, we'll instantly say, well, can't we have both? And God be praised that many times there are seasons when they come together. But such is our temptation that as comforts abound, we often spiritually relax and recline and start to, as it were, lessen our stride. But affliction comes and God so orders it that we would see the world for what it is. We don't deny the goodness of earthly things the Lord provides us. But we do acknowledge that the best that the world can provide us, lawfully good, to be enjoyed by the believer, is infinitely beneath that which we may enjoy in God, even in the worst of outward trials. So the desire of the believer is to know the peace of God which He has given through Christ Jesus and to enjoy that fellowship forever. Well, as we close, learn then again, because doubtlessly each of us has learned this before, trials are painful. As noted earlier, they're not an imagination, nor is sorrow and difficulty in trial necessarily an evidence of weakness in a believer. It may be, it may be that the believer is immaturely responding to circumstances, but it's not necessarily so. Trials really bring forth pain, hurt, difficulty, sorrow. There's some martyrs who even had their words recorded at the face of torture, and they would say, I realize this that you may constrain me in my weakness to say things I would rather not say, God be merciful and give me strength. And God often would give them strength to overcome. But they knew something going in. They may be weak in the midst of it. But even if they were strong in the midst of it, the pain they would endure was real. It was a challenge, a trial, a difficulty. And so believers feeling pain and sorrowing in that is not a mark of immaturity. It's a mark that affliction is real. If that's all they have, of course, there's something missing. But if they have that with faith, with prayer, with hope, it's not a sign that there's immaturity. It's a sign of the reality of pain in the trial. This ought to cultivate in us compassion toward others in their sorrows, in their pains, in their trials, and to cultivate humility in us. We see it in Peter, of course, as he was bold before the trial came and then weak when it did come. But brethren, we only need to look in the mirror to see how many times we have been weak as well because trials hurt. But secondly, learn that trials are also ordered for good for the believer. We see this in the expression of David. We see it in the instruction of Paul. David is quickened and he's strengthened unto prayer 
desiring God. This is something that can help us see the difference between a hypocrite in trial and a believer in trial. A hypocrite cries out to God in pain. There's no doubt of that. We see it recorded in Scripture. We've seen history testify of the same. But the difference is this. Hypocrites only seek God's relief. But believers seek relief in God. There's a difference. The hypocrite's just saying to God, give me the relief that can only come from you. Whereas the believer's saying, give me yourself that I may be relieved in you. The hypocrite seeks only the deliverance from distress, while believers seek deliverance from distance, that is, distance from God. They want to be closer to God. That's their longing. Oh, doubtlessly, David wanted to be home. All of us, after being away for some season, know the comfort of arriving home. And surely when chased away, all the more so is it the case that we would desire to be home. But the believer above such comforts and deliverance from outward trials seeks more than that, the deliverance in drawing near to God. In simple ways, we can say it this way, hypocrites seek God's gifts while believers seek God's presence. This is something to examine ourselves with. When it is that we're suffering trial, we should ask ourselves the question, what is it that I most want? And we can answer it theoretically, hypothetically, and so on, but we can also answer it by assessing our prayers. For what am I praying most for? What am I pouring out my heart most for? Is it most for God, or is it simply most for my relief? Now, brethren, we must be careful and balanced. We ought to pray for the outward relief. We ought to pray for the relinquishing of these distresses. When the apostles were in prison, the church wasn't just praying, oh God, make them draw near to you. They were praying, deliver them. And we ought to pray the same as it is lawful and good to do so. But the believer beyond that is seeking something even more. What did Paul do? Oh God, take this thorn from my side. He gets the response, my grace is sufficient for you. Instantly starts giving thanks for things. I thank you for these sufferings. I thank you for these trials. Why? Because in my weakness, God's strength is made perfect. And so we close then with this exhortation. When we find ourselves in trial, instead of seeking to shove the distress away, we're to leverage it to our soul's advantage. How do we do that? One thing is by coming under the weight of our trial. We saw earlier in Luke's Gospel this past Sabbath that Christ says that the disciples are to take up their cross. They aren't to say, I don't want that. Can I choose out the cross that you're going to give to me? And instead, when trials come, understanding that it's God who sends them, we are to come under them, knowing that Christ is with us, yoked with us in the midst of it. But we see it for what it is. We acknowledge its weight, its pain, its difficulty. We don't, in our speaking, sugarcoat it. We don't say, oh, it's not as bad as it is. It's not that we go out and complain to the world, but before the Lord we're saying, this 
is miserable. My soul is struggling. I'm weak. I'm panicked. I'm anxious. And it's because of these circumstances. Here's the pain. Here's the burden. Here are my tears. David's regularly doing this in other psalms. However, we also remember the order of our needs. Our first order is not that this cross, this thorn would be removed. Our first need is that we would be strengthened by God's grace, knowing Him to be faithful to His name. We don't know. Is the trial going to last an hour? Is it going to last a week? Is it going to last the rest of our earthly life? Our need, first and foremost, is that He would sustain our souls in grace and would cause us to know His presence. Whether the trial is short in this life or long in this life, the greatest need you and I have is to know the presence of God in peace by the blood of Christ. And then as we do these things, we assemble, as it were, our arguments, as David did. We acknowledge God's faithfulness. And so we bring it up and promise, God, You've promised never to leave me nor forsake me. Here it is in Your Word. We appeal to previous displays of faithfulness. God, as You did not leave me then, as You've not left Your people in the past, so don't leave me now. And we're building our appeal of faith. We acknowledge indeed our misery and trials and troubles. But as David did, we also look to the peace which is ours in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a blessed statement. So often in Scripture, that little expression that's often used, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus, in Christ, in Christ the Lord. And oh, how blessed that often it is that we are in Christ Jesus. And so on, the blessed truth of the union we have unto fellowship and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, You are mine by promise. You are mine by covenant. You are mine by the blood which Christ shed. And though I see not the blood now, nor even do I see the sign of His blood, yet the blood speaks still of peace, of fellowship, of communion. And so, God, commune with me in these seasons. Guide me, lead me, help me, be with me. And we thus pour out our heart, resting upon the perfect peace which is purchased for us by Christ Jesus. And though it's beyond, we ought to see as well And even while the trial continues, we by His grace resolve to praise Him and obey Him daily. David doesn't say, listen, once the trial's done, then I will daily perform my vows. But he says, I will sing praise unto Thy name forever and I will daily perform my vows. And so must we because we trust in Him who is faithful. We commune with Him who has made peace for us. And though the trial is hard, sharp, and difficult, the peace, the reconciliation, the joy that we have in Christ is likewise certain, sound, and powerful. 
And so may God minister help to us in trials present and to come that we might put our hope in Him. Would you stand with me 